You're listening to the Premier Podcast Network. Foundation Radio is brought to you by 10th Ward Barbershop. Serving the historic 10th Ward in downtown Lawrenceville, 10th Ward Barbershop is a full-service barbershop offering quality haircuts, beard trims, and hot shaves. Adam gets his hair and beard trimmed by the owner of the shop, Ryan Kane, and he loves the laser point precision cuts and lineup he provides to him and countless other satisfied customers. But you don't have to take Adam's word for it. WWE superstars Corey Graves and The Fiend Bray Wyatt frequent 10th Ward for all their hair and beard trimming needs. Right now, all all cuts and trims are by appointment only. So head over to their website at 10thwardbarbershop.com and book your appointment now with Kane, Jordan, and the rest of the team at 10th Ward Barbershop. That's 10thwardbarbershop.com. And we thank them for supporting the podcast. Foundation Radio is brought to you by The Dugout. The Dugout provides custom quality apparel at an affordable price. Modern style mixed with classic designs, you'll find retro t-shirts brought into the 21st century. Adam has several of his favorite t-shirts in rotation from the team at The Dugout, including customized Dudley Boys, Prince and the Revolution, and the Notorious B.I.G. t-shirts. Right now, if you purchase your items through their Etsy site and use promo code FOUNDATION, you'll receive 15% off your entire order. That's right, 15% off your entire order. Follow them on Instagram at the dugout brand follow the link on their etsy shop and use your promo code foundation for 15 percent off your entire order the dugout custom quality apparel at an affordable price Everybody to Foundation Radio. My name is Adam Bernard. Thank you so much for joining me. My guest today is the producer and the director of the three-part documentary series, Unprecedented, which chronicles Donald Trump's last and final days in the White House. Alex Holder, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you, sir? Yeah, I'm great. Thank you. And it's really lovely to be with you as well. I appreciate your time. So I just kind of want to give everybody a little bit of background on your life and your documentary series. You had this really amazing documentary about 2016 um, called Keep Quiet. Can you give listeners who may not be familiar with you, can you give them a little context on, on the story behind that documentary? Sure. It was, uh, it was actually quite interesting. It was about this neo-Nazi who has set up the largest far-right party in Europe um, called Jobbik. It's based in Hungary. And this guy was a real outspoken anti-Semite, Holocaust denier, a real sort of little mini Hitler. And then he found out that he was, in fact, Jewish, which is a problem if you're a neo-Nazi and you set up a, a far-right party. So he then got kicked out of his own political party, which he was one of the co-founders of, and then embraced Orthodox Judaism. So it was quite a, uh, quite a U-turn, I think. <laughs> so the documentary takes us on this journey of you know, him you know, dealing with this newfound religion, essentially, of his that he had been denigrating for, for his entire life. And it's fascinating. I mean, his grandmother was still alive. She, she actually passed away um, at some point sort of whilst we were filming. But there's this amazing moment where he meets his grandmother who had hidden her Jewish identity because she was so concerned that the Holocaust would happen again because she was actually in the concentration camps. And so you, you really get into this really fascinating, beautiful world where he uh, comes to terms with who he is and uh, what his identity is. And it's, it's a brilliant story. Yeah, I, like I said, I was I was researching you before we had this conversation, and I saw that, and it really piqued my interest because recently I found out that even people in my own family, you know, my my great grandmother escaped perse Jewish persecution over in Eastern Europe during the time when all of those things were happening. So you find out about these things, and you start learning about yourself, and you realize that there's an entire history of your family and your lineage that you may never even knew about. But I always find it amazing. I mean, it's it's incredible that this man was just hating himself. For so long and you know now he finds out he discovers himself and um i guess as far as that goes so when did you want when did you realize also too because it seems like with both of these really in both of these incredible stories um you have a really great way of telling and painting a picture when did you realize that you wanted to do documentary film was it something that happened is it something you fell into 
Interesting. I mean, I think it was, I mean, I've always been interested in stories and storytelling and, you know, hearing, you know, hearing people and listening to them and, and, and also history. I always found history very interesting as well. So uh, in some ways I fell into it, but in, in other ways, I probably always was meant to be doing this in some capacity, um, one way or another. Uh, I mean, my, uh, my old man wanted me to be a doctor. So I actually studied uh, to be compromised. I didn't want to be a doctor. But he wanted me to be a doctor. Uh, he he claims that I wanted to be a doctor from a young age. But you know, I, I mean, you know, everyone says they want to be an astronaut or something. Really. So I may have said once I want to be a doctor. Anyway, we compromised on me studying like biomedicine. Uh, so I actually did biomedicine at university and then set up a film company. And uh, you know, years later, um, here we are. <laughs> now I guess. We'll just jump right into this because I think that's what everybody's here to listen to is to hear us talk about Donald Trump for a little bit. Tell me about the processes, how you got involved with the Trump family, because it seems like they, they live in this world of duality where they are incredibly private in a lot of instances, but they also are very public. How, would, how were you able to get into that network and sort of tell me about the beginning processes of how that works? So I've been working for about uh, a year and a half or two years on a project about the Middle East, uh, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, and we had been interviewing lots of people across the discourse. It's been a fascinating project. And I'd come out to America to interview people who were involved in the discourse from the American sort of perspective. And I interviewed somebody who had worked with the Trump family for a relatively long time prior to them entering into politics. And then he then also worked at the White House for a couple of years as well in the Middle East um, you know, sort of issue. And uh, he had just left the White House before the administration had actually finished. And I was interviewing him for my project. And because he knew you know, Trump and the family, I thought, why not ask him a question about why don't we make a documentary about the sitting president of the United States and his three eldest kids? I mean, yeah, it was one of those things where it was like, you know, this is ridiculous. I mean, I mean there's no scenario where this is actually going to happen because it's a filmmaker's dream. I mean, it's not just access to a sitting president. It's also access to a sitting president with the last name Trump, right? I mean, he's just obviously a fascinating, complicated, controversial character. And so I thought, you know, why not start this conversation? And then and this is around about early 2020. And, uh, and COVID had just started to hit in Europe. It hadn't yet got to America. And so we, so we start this conversation. Um, it's totally absurd. I uh, go back to London and then the world basically stops because COVID hits. Uh, but I maintain that conversation with, you know, with various people that were around the White House, around the Trump family. And eventually got to a stage where it started becoming more serious. But I never really thought this was ever going to happen. And, and the truth is, is that all the way through this project, I always took each day as a okay. cave. There was never, it, you know, the project evolved and evolved and, and we got more and more and more access as it sort of played out. And I'll explain in a second how we did that. But what I did, which I think was really interesting, was that one of the most important, at least from my perspective, uh, things for documentary is to maintain editorial control. Um, but it's also the most controversial part of the process and you sort of leave that conversation until the end when you're dealing with contributors mainly because you sort of want to you know maintain that relationship keep it going have the conversation and deal with the hard part at the end at least that's what i had done in the past with this because it was so absurd i actually started right at the beginning by saying look in my mind there's no way they're going to say yes and there's obviously no way they're going to say that they would agree to editorial control so may as well just start at the beginning and I did, and they agreed. And I think the reason that they agreed to all of this is because by the time we had got to really this actually looking like it was going to happen, it, it coincided with the election campaign. So this is now sort of August, September 2020. And they were incredibly confident that they were going to win the election. So here was a guy who didn't have any political skin in the game. He was foreign. He was British. Um, and they were incredibly, incredibly confident that they were going to win the 2020 election. I mean, this is going to be a repeat of 2016. The pollsters are all wrong. And we're going to sort of, as Don Jr. will say, we're going to make liberals cry again. And, you, you know, that was definitely a, a major aspect. And as I mentioned, you know, my, me being English and, and foreign and not having political skin in the game also helped because I, I think because you know, I was saying to them, you know, you've been complaining for four years and more about the way that you've been treated in the media. So why not, you know, tell me what it is? You know, I, I'm not part of the American media establishment. So 
uh, I'm here to to listen to what you've got to say. And I think that certainly uh, certainly helped. And then I joke to say whether or not you know my British charm, you know, sort of sealed the deal. But um, <laughs> but 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 that's uh, that that's sort of it, really. I mean, you know, it was it was just. I think it was a me being determined in seeing it through, but at the same time, I think being realistic in the fact that no one's ever had this kind of access to a sitting president and the first family before, especially on a you know, re-election campaign. And so, was this a real? Was this really going to happen? And that and that approach all the way through. I mean, on every occasion, from interviewing you know, Eric Trump the first time in Trump Tower to eventually interviewing. The president in the White House, after he barricaded himself in after losing the election, but maintaining his his conspiracies. Now, I want to go back to something that you said as far as Trump and and editorial control, because I think a lot of times when I think about Donald Trump, I think about fake news. I think about the whole, you know, it's everyone's against me. If you're not with me, we go to war, which he actually says in the documentary. If you don't treat me nicely, something to the attest of. If you don't treat me nicely, then we go to war. When you, you approach us with him, he went for it. He said, yes, I'm going to give you full control over this. At any point from, I guess, essentially pillar to post, did he ever waver from that? Was there ever anything that he really – because I expected him – and we'll get to this you know, later in the conversation about January 6th, but I expected him to pull back on January 6th a little bit. But he didn't seem like he was really willing to not say anything. But was there any point at when you guys were having the conversations or when you're going through these processes where he was like, no, I really want to be in control of this? Not really, because I think that there's this is something that's very important to understand about Trump and really his his children, mainly the two eldest boys, uh, Ivanka Lessa, which is that uh, Donald Trump doesn't really understand how people can't like him. Right. The reason he is able to understand why people don't like him is only if he doesn't like them. So he has to be the person to not like you know, X person before they cannot like him. So the idea that we would create something that he wouldn't be happy with wasn't something that really entered into his mind. And you can see that a lot of the time in the interviews and things that he's given to various authors and books, right? Because he lets Woodward and people interview him and he right. always teases that they're going to write uh, bad stuff. He doesn't think that the stuff that they're writing is justified. He sees it in this quite cynical view, which is that uh, actually they're only writing bad stuff about Trump because that's how they sell their book, right? So he can't comprehend how someone doesn't like him unless he doesn't like them first. You know, that's, that's the way he's so narcissistic that there's just no world in which somebody couldn't like him. It's not a genuine dislike. He can't understand why people would genuinely dislike him, I think is the main point I'm trying to get across. And that, and that is something where, to him, the idea that I would make something that I, I believe is a very fair portrayal of the events that took place, but something that he doesn't like is something that he can't really compute. Spending two years with the Trump family seems like a really daunting task. Was there ever anything, <laughs> was there anything that happened that really blew your mind watching these guys? Cause you see it on TV and you sort of have this abject idea where you're like, okay, these guys are a little off the wall. Um, just to put it bluntly. Um, was there ever a time, anything that they said where you just stopped for a second? You were just like, you know, because I, I know you mentioned on, uh, on Seth Meyers where you put your hand, someone put their hand up on the wall and was like, oh, my God, I can't believe that I, I heard that. How many times did that happen during the course of this two-year period? So, I mean, I think the, that I approached this very much uh, at the beginning as, okay, some of this stuff is a bit weird, but maybe it's just the American version of an election, which is obviously very different to a British version of an election. Right. And then it started changing. But a lot of those moments were, were, were more just purely the access that we were having and the exposure we were getting to things that are so behind the scenes. So, for instance, you know, traveling on Air Force One. I mean, that was a holy shit moment, right? I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm... And, and also on that day, normally the president flew to Andrews Air Force Base in his helicopter, and then we would go, you know, people, well, we, I mean, people would then go in the cars, you know, and follow through. But on that day, it was terrible weather. It was really bad rain. So he actually went in the motorcade, and then, you know, you experience a presidential motorcade, and we're in, you know, the vans following to Andrews Air Force Base. And that's another, like, what the fuck is going on here, right? I mean, like, I'm in the motorcade with the president of the United States of America, zipping through Washington, D.C., seeing how the police operate and everything. But then, you know, there are moments where 
I was driving in a motorcade. And there were times where, you know, I'm literally closer to the president and to some of the first family than Secret Service are. And I think that those were the moments which were definitely like surreal and, and quite remarkable. And also the fact that we were walking in history. So, for instance, after I interviewed Jared Kushner, that evening was the evening when Trump tweeted that he had COVID. And I wake up, I actually went to bed early that morning. I wake up, I think my phone's exploded. I mean, somebody obviously has died because I've got like, you know, 50 text messages and 300 WhatsApp messages and missed calls. And, and then we were having these like mad, serious conversations where like, we hadn't yet interviewed the president and he might die. <laughs> like, right. you know, so. Exactly. Like, oh, fuck, yeah, what am I going to do now? Yeah. Right. So like, it is, it's just, it was crazy that we were like in this world that was so, in theory, protected or should be protected. And, and in some ways, obviously, it's protected in aspects. But like, like, why am I in the White House, you know, doing this? There's definitely moments that happened quite a lot. So I think that was definitely, in terms of the characters, in terms of who they were, I mean, I think I was definitely surprised, obviously, as you know, you mentioned on Seth Meyers, Trump's you know, irrational and insane behavior right. that I thought before was him you know, dangerously joking, um, but but in fact was real. And, and that was definitely something that was shocking. Uh, there was a moment when, obviously, when the vice president gets the email of the 25th um, Amendment Resolution was also just quite, quite remarkable. So there were lots of these things, but I think that there were so many of them that I, I, and I still probably haven't actually, you know, sort of lay down in the dark room and close my eyes and thought it all through. And I think I definitely need to, but this thing hasn't really ended yet. So, uh, but it's been just a quite, quite a spectacular journey. I'm perpetually curious about folks and their behaviors and why they do the things that they do. I consistently look at somebody like Donald Trump and I always think to myself, not just him, but the people who support him and the people who follow him, I look at them and I really think to myself, like, there's absolutely no way that this person can believe what he does. When I watch this documentary and I watch Trump talk, it really appeared as though he genuinely believed everything that he was saying. And I think that was striking for me because a lot of times I see Trump, you know, I'm, I'm familiar with Trump from being a young man in the 90s, growing up, watching him on television. You know, I'm, I'm WWE fan. I remember watching him in those matches. And I always see him as a showman, as a statesman. He's a guy that's selling you something, right? He's the used car sales guy down here in Philadelphia, right? He's a guy trying to hustle you for everything. But it really it, it appears that he believes everything that he's saying. Was that difficult to sit there and listen to him say that? And were you uncomfortable in any scenario where he's talking about the election fraud lies and, and some of the other things that he was kind of going on about? Was there ever a time where you just had to stop and just sort of take stock of what he was saying and and do you believe that he genuinely believes the things that he says yeah i mean yeah so one is that we can't really know what goes on inside anyone's mind right but right. my take from my interactions with him is that he absolutely does believe what he says the the, the insanity that he created and the tragedy that ensued from it is utterly down to him and the fact that he believes it does not make him less culpable in any way, right? right? As to, you know, the legalities of that is obviously for the lawyers and people to work out, but I'm sure there are plenty of people who do terrible things because they believe those things to be right. It doesn't mean that therefore they don't go to prison right. or, you know, face consequences. But moving that to one side, what I felt was what was important, and this is why I was so taken aback by it, is that he believes in this insanity Therefore, you can't have a rational conversation with him. Mm -hmm. And any point in trying to do so would just either frustrate him and then you sort of, you know, you lose your access, right? And, you, and, and he walks out of the interview, which is what he's done on plenty of occasions, uh, or, he, or, or you just waste time and he just sort of maintains his position. It's like, no, Mr. President, the sky is not green, it's blue. No, it's green. And then you could just keep going on and on and on you know, ad infinitum, that, that's not really going to be particularly interesting. The other point is that I always saw this as being that I was recording history mm. and that I was there to ask a question and to hear what the answer was, what was going through this man's mind at this time during this crazy situation, uh, i.e. 
the election lies that he had started only you know, sort of a few weeks earlier after having lost the election to President Biden. And this isn't just a man. This is the incumbent president of the United States of America sitting in the White House with the portrait of President George Washington looking down at him with the man with the nuclear football standing behind me and about 30 Secret Service agents everywhere. This is, this is the president of the United States telling me that Joe Biden didn't get 80 million votes and that the election had been stolen and that he had rightfully won and then was then giving me remedies to support the crazy claims that he uh, was, was pursuing. So to me, what I was thinking at the time is, sure, this is crazy and this man is off his rocker and this is a very dangerous situation. Uh, and so, but... Yeah, you know, my way of dealing with that was, you know, holding walls and, you know, try, <laughs> moving going, furniture going that back. belonged to Abraham Lincoln. Right. Yeah. In, in, indeed. Indeed. Or sort of curling up in the fetal position when I'm, uh, you know, uh, back in the hotel. I mean, you know, it is, uh, you know, it is, it is a completely crazy situation, but it's also a very important thing for people to see and to learn from and to hopefully ensure it never happens again. You mentioned culpability, which I guess is going to tie into the next part of the conversation, which is January 6th, which I feel like throughout the course of this documentary when I watched it, it was, you know, it's, it's incredible, by the way. It's, it's very well done. It's surprising in a lot of the ways that I, I guess I didn't expect. And what I mean by that is because I genuinely thought that Trump was just a showman and he was just trying to get votes. But watching him speak from a place of what he thought was knowledge and truth it's very, it's very uncomfortable to watch uh, when he starts to speak. Um, but you talk about culpability, and, and one of the things that's really kind of terrifying as these things happen, this, this conga line of holy shit moments that happen through the course of the film, is all of this leads to a crescendo up until January 6th. Now, your footage there was absolutely unbelievable. Were you in that, were you in that crowd, or was that part of your team that was filming inside of January 6th, can you give me a little context for maybe myself and anybody else who's listening? What was that like to be there? Because I, I know, you know, we're, we're talking about a lot of this, you know, living history, you're recording living history as it's happening. But I don't think anybody in their minds or anybody in, in any universe would have imagined an attack on our capital. So while you're there or while your team is there, what's going through your mind as it's happening? Kind of give me a play by play on that as as those things were going down. So the truth is, is that I did, based on having spent time with him and his kids and seen how things were unfolding, and now totally convinced that Trump will do everything he can to maintain his hold on the presidency, that the idea of him trying something on January 6th that would be dangerous was something that I thought was possible. And so the night before, I said to Michael, who was my director of photography, I was in the elevator with him. We were in D.C. And as we're going up, I said to him, you know, Trump's going to get them all to march on the Capitol tomorrow. And we sort of half laughed because, like, it was such a crazy thing to say. But we also planned for that to potentially happen. And the reason I came to this conclusion, I mean, it, you know, aside from having spent all this time with the family and seeing the rhetoric and the, you know, their belligerence and, and all this sort of in, in, and the lies and, and, and everything just sort of, heating up and getting more and more and more potentially very dangerous was that he had this crazy idea that after having lost all these cases and all the various things he tried to do didn't work, that intervening in this ceremonial process in Congress on January 6th could potentially allow him to stay in office. And obviously he put a huge amount of pressure on the vice president. And, you know, the way Trump speaks is very much like a mafia boss, right? You know, it's, it's not like, explicit it's very you know, you know we hope mike pence comes through for us because if he doesn't pause you know we won't be very happy right, right? right. so yeah we won't like him very much yeah dot 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 mm -hmm. uh, so you know, that's the way that he speaks so you know this is this this pressure is being built up it's going on and on and on and then we get to this day where he's now called all his supporters to come it's obviously a huge crowd and at the moment i got there i mean it was quite clear that this was a very unusual situation because I've been to previous Trump rallies before where we've interacted with his supporters and it was like very much like uh, go, going to a concert whereas this was like a religious convention. There was like people who, there, there were definitely people that were kids and they were happy and excited but there was really this feeling of like 
you know, he's going to do it. Like, you know, we, they were praying that this was going to be the moment where he would prove to everyone that he had actually won the election and that something is going to happen that would uh, ensure that he stays for the four years. And so, so the plan that we made was that Michael would obviously follow the crowd to wherever they're going. Obviously, we, we assumed the capital, uh, which is where they went. Uh, and I would take all the equipment that wasn't necessary for him to carry back to my car and move my car to near the capital. And then if it gets really dangerous, I would be able to sort of help extricate him from that situation. I mean, that part didn't work uh, because by the time we got to the, by the time I got to the capital, you know, things were already really serious. And then I couldn't actually get, but Michael was the one that was up on the steps, you know, outside the capital where he films one of, Trump supporters dying mm. on the steps of the Capitol. It's horrific footage. Yeah. Uh, but he also films, you know, that his supporters bleeding and attacking police officers. And it, it was just the most remarkable and horrific moment because this was American people invading the American Capitol, attempting to potentially assassinate the American vice president and the American Speaker of the House because they were listening to the incumbent American president. I mean, when you sort of think about it, you know, it's so extraordinary and tragic, really. And to me, it was just the, it, there wasn't a conclusion to the series that we made that isn't that. Like people say, you know, if this didn't happen, what would the series have looked like? But that's just not, a, that, I don't think that's a, a real way of looking at it because what they did, and I say they, i.e. the president and his supporters, and you know, including his own children, by not recognizing how dangerous it was that they were perpetuating this terrible lie and telling 75 million people that that, they, uh, that their vote didn't count, it, it was just inevitable that it was going to end in this very violent and terribly sad situation, which is going to affect America and the rest of the world for a very long time. Well, I think it's that's an important point to make, though, too, is the fact that I agree with that analysis. I don't think that anything would have stopped that from happening. Once he announced that he was going to the, you know, Save America or the America First rally, whatever it was called, once that was announced that he was going there, I think the buildup and everything that Giuliani was doing and everything that all of his supporters and even his kids were doing, all of the verbiage, all of the coding and the subtext that was happening from the things that they're saying. Remember, like, it always comes back to this idea about culpability and what Trump says. Trump knows exactly what he's talking about. He knows exactly how to say it and why to say it. So when he says things like, we're going to be mad at him, dot, 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 the ellipses there is incredibly important. It goes towards what the other side of that means is we're going to go find him. They had a noose and a gallows set up to grab Mike Pence and Nancy Pelosi. These were not people who were coming in to be anything other than violent to overthrow this established order. Uh, so I think it's really important. It's a really important point to make is that fact that I don't believe in any way, shape, or form that anything could have changed the trajectory of what happened on that day. I know that there was conversations that happened and things were happening while you were filming, um, but one of the things I wanted to talk about, sort of explore with you and kind of pull apart was really about the kids and then also sort of secondary Mike Pence and some of the conversations you had. I think it was a really important distinction from listening to Ivanka, Ivanka Trump, not acknowledge the fact that the election was stolen. She never used those words. She just used the phrasing that the president believes that every vote should be counted. Whereas Don Jr. and Eric are quoting chapter and verse with the conspiracy theories and the, you know, the lies that are being spread and peddled about the 2020 election. Do you think there was a purpose behind that? Do you think there was a reason why Ivanka wouldn't come out and publicly say that, but Don Jr. and Eric were willing to cross that bridge? I mean, I think that they that my interactions with the kids were always that they would echo in some shape or form their father's position, right? They would just articulate it slightly differently. So, you know, Don is obviously very similar to his father in terms of his rhetoric and the way that he speaks and, and in some ways is, is actually, a, I would say, probably a better orator than his father, but that probably isn't that difficult. But, uh, <laughs> but he... Uh, but, but he is, uh, he's certainly similar to his father. And Eric tries very hard uh, to please his father. I mean, they all essentially are vying for their father's love. It's quite clear. Um, but they never really departed from their father's position. I mean, Ivanka definitely tried to play this really you know, difficult game in agreeing with her father's position, but, but not going as far as what her brothers would say. Um, but, but ultimately, 
she did say that, you know, and, and this is obviously, there was a whole news story about what she had said to me and what she had said to the January 6th committee, where there was a clear uh, contradiction uh, in that she had said to the committee that she had supported the Attorney General's position from the 1st of December, right. where he said there was no evidence to support the lie. And what she said to me only a few days later was that, a few days after the Attorney General's statement, she had said to me that actually, um, you know, my father should continue this fight and should keep going. And she supports him on that front. So I think there, there, there are certainly different types of ways that they would articulate the position, but ultimately it was always in support of their father because the only thing that matters to the Trump family and to Donald Trump is Trump. It's the brand. And to ensure that lives on uh, in perpetuity as being this ultimate success and, uh, and, and, and there's no connection whatsoever to defeat. And so they always have to keep that going. And, and that's what they've been doing their whole lives. It's fascinating. You talk about the kids and, and kind of vying for their father's attention. I found myself in some instances and in some aspects while they were talking, feeling kind of sad for them because it appears as though all they wanted was their, their dad's love. They wanted their, his affection, his attention and his love. And he seems willfully unprepared to do that. Did you feel sad for them at any point where they were discussing those things? Because it's not in what they're saying, it's how they're saying it, right? Was there ever a time when you look back at that footage and you're like, wow, that, that must really suck <laughs> to, be, to be that jockeying so hard for your dad's love? Yeah, I mean, there was this moment actually when he yeah, was looking at the iPad uh, of his kids campaigning and he talks about how they have their own base. You know, they all have their own base, which is a nice thing to say, but then he then goes on to say, but it's really part of my base. And that thought was so unusual, right? Like a father making the point that he's better than his children and that his children's success come entirely from him. And that may very well be the case, but just it was an unusual thing for a father to say about their kids. So I certainly thought that was an interesting reaction. I mean, in terms of, of feeling sorry for them, I mean, you know, when you've got, when you hear things like, uh, my father wasn't really a conventional father, Ivanka would say, and he wouldn't go to various school plays and, and things. You know, you sort of, you feel sorry for, for children who don't have that, uh, you know, that type of relationship with their parents. But there's plenty of people who, who don't go to their kids' school plays and things. So, yeah, I think that it, it wasn't totally surprising, but at the same time, I think what was interesting was that they would always try and justify their father's role in their life because I think deep down they know that it wasn't as close as, that they, as, as they would have wanted. It's, um, I just, I found moments, you know, just reflecting on my own life where I was like, wow, I can really connect with that for some reason. And I found it kind of uncomfortable that I was connecting with Donald Trump Jr. in any way, shape or form at that very moment. So um, I was just curious to, to, to get your take on that. But I, I, I kind of, I wanted to go back to January 6th for a second and talk about Mike Pence, because there's a moment after January 6th, um, you'll have to correct me, I think it was several days after January 6th happened. And he receives an email, you know, in, in, in succession with the holy shit moments, which I feel like it, that should have been the title in parentheses. Um, he gets an email from Congress as a resolution to invoke the 25th Amendment. You're sitting there filming him while he's reading this document. And I'm, I mean, when he showed up on the screen, I'll, I'll admit, I did not expect to see Mike Pence in this documentary. When he popped, I, I popped, I was like, holy shit, Mike Pence is in this. We're about to get something great. And the only things he gives us is, is the same boilerplate, generic, America's best days are, are yet to come. The, you know, the okey-doke, white bread America, you know, punchline. And then he refuses to discuss the 25th Amendment or January 6th. Were you disappointed in that moment? Was you, you're obviously, the, the idea for you is not even necessarily as like a, you know, they, they claim it's a gotcha thing or whatever that, that whole narrative is. But just in the sense that you're capturing history. And you're you're in that moment. Is that disappointing to you, or did you did you kind of have an idea that you were like, no, nah, this is probably not going to happen? So I think that the, the mere fact of being able to have filmed Mike Pence for a second on the twelfth of January, so that six days after the events in the Capitol, was something that was just the most important thing in the world, right? I mean, to be able to get 
him on camera when he's probably the most important person on planet Earth. I mean, yeah, you go on, I remember looking at the BBC before he came in and, and every single news, news website had him as, I mean, five, six stories about him all over. I mean, he was the most important guy in the world. Well, no one, right? had, ever, no one had ever tried to kill the vice president before. You know, no one had an right. mob to kill the vice president. Before. Yeah, right. <laughs> exactly. And here I am in the vice president's ceremonial office. And he is, you know, he's running a bit late and the interview kept getting pushed. But eventually he walks in and I was like, it doesn't matter what he says, just to see him, what he looks like in this moment was just obviously absolutely fascinating. Now, to then see his reaction to that email was also incredible and a historic moment. The idea of him speaking about January 6th and anything else, it, you know, he, he's just the straight down the line politician. And I think that there was just no world in which he was going to go down that that road. But frankly, his silence in that situation speaks volumes. So you know, whether or not it's a good thing or a bad thing, what you can imply from it, you know, others can work that out. But for me, to have had, because Mike Pence is not part of the story, right? I mean, the story that we were telling all the way through, you know, in episodes one and two, and he's there because we had this amazing opportunity to to see him and to meet him in this moment. And for me, there was an obligation to record whatever I could of him when he is, uh, when he's, when he's there. And obviously we got incredibly lucky to get that, that moment uh, on camera. And, and I, and I say lucky in the sense of it's just incredible for the historic record for people to be able to watch what it's like to be in the room when something momentous takes place. The film wraps. Trump leaves the White House. The world moves on. You have a does it really? I mean, well, I mean, Alex, we can does it maybe because you have a you have a funny haired blonde guy over in Britain that you guys are dealing with as well. So I feel like birds of a feather. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> so the world keeps spinning proverbially, and then the documentary is getting ready to be released on on Discovery Plus, and then you get a, an email from the January 6th committee and you find out that you're being subpoenaed to go and essentially testify and they are subpoenaing your your doc your documentary your film out of all the holy shit moments that took place like not only are you you are privy to history you're filming these moments as they're happening but now you're going to essentially you'll be taught in history books decades centuries from now about this particular event are you just blown away by this at this point? Like, are you just like, how much more will happen with this story now? And as much as you're able to share, because I know, you know, litigation and things like that, I understand that you're not allowed to talk about a lot of those things, closed door, I understand. But when you're in the room, obviously the gravity is weighing on you. Tell me about the experience of being in that room while you're testifying. Sure. And, and just on the point of, you were saying how like, you know, when will this end, right? I mean, that that is literally what I what I wrote to my yeah, assistant. As in, we because we kept thinking that there would be like there were there were meant to be lots of ends all the way through. I mean, even after the election, like right. the election kept going on, and then yeah, then and, and the access kept happening as well. So it just, the project went on and on and on, and then finally we finished the project only a few months ago. And okay, finally, you know, like that's it. And obviously, we expect there to be a reaction when it finally comes out. But then, then the subpoena comes, and 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 I think, look, I was expecting that. I honestly did expect them to get in touch because they had spent you know about a year investigating everything that was happening on that day. They had you know, numerous number of researchers and people that were looking at all the different camera people that were. Uh, present on that day so I actually thought they would get in touch so on the one hand I wasn't so surprised that they would get in touch I think I was surprised by how long it took for them to get in touch that was sort of one and two it was this convergence of them subpoenaing me is that even a word subpoenaing Subpoena I mean it is if you want it to be if we can okay. people, <laughs> yeah, I'll write it down so, subpoenaing right an ER got it yeah so them <laughs> serving me with a subpoena and uh, and then that happening at exactly the same time as the public hearings and the, uh, the and the first public hearing was was obviously prime time and everyone could see the almost the production values that were going into this and how compelling 
it was. So you've got public hearings, the subpoena of my footage and, and me all happening at the same time, plus the fact that no one really had ever had sort of access to a sitting president and his family before, and it was this president and all these events that are taking place. So all of that happened, and then there was this just explosion of madness where I was now thrust into the midst of this like media storm. And I think what was what's really important is that I was never meant... To, I wasn't part of this story in the sense that I'm barely in the series, right? Like, you know, a lot of these interviews with politicians, you've got two cameras, one's on the subject, and then the other one's on the interviewer. And in the series... It's very Frost-Nixon in a lot of ways, right? But with this series, I was... I'm barely in it. I mean, I'm probably in it for about three seconds when you see me hand an iPad to him. So and you hear my voice every now and then, but I'm barely in it. It was never about me. This is about these people and this family and their dynamic with each other and it's their story. So, and then it's for everybody else to, you know, to watch it and to learn and to hear from these people. But so, so me being then not just sort of like part of the story, but actually the story was pretty extraordinary and something I, I was not anticipating at all. And so it's been quite a journey um, over the last six weeks. I mean, it's been, it's been pretty insane. Yeah. I was going to say, I, I imagine I, uh, at the, right before we started, we hit record here. I said, it was just, it feels like it's been a whirlwind for you. I mean, you've been everywhere. You've been all over. It's been just quite crazy for you. So I can't imagine that at any point during this time, I'm sure you would have imagined like, yeah, this is going to be a big deal, but not like, Hey, I'm testifying in front of the January 6th committee. Big deal. You know? No, definitely not. And just to answer that, you know, on that note, I mean, I remember, you know, so I, me walking into the building and you know, the paparazzi are there and they're filming and, you know, this is just obviously completely ridiculous and, and crazy. But actually, the, the real moment I, that I actually have never mentioned really before, which is which was extraordinary, was before all of it. When I was in the airport in Los Angeles flying to D.C., I was sitting in the airport and behind me is a television uh, no, by the restaurant and it's playing MSNBC or whatever it was. And... and I turn around and I see that they're talking about me on the TV. And I was just like, this is, this is, this is crazy. I mean, this is just absolutely insane. Like, who is that? Like they had a picture of me. Wow. I mean, it was mad. So then you get to DC, we go in. And then I remember going inside to the room and it's the room everyone sees on the dep where the depositions take place. Right. And I pulled my chair back and, and it, it just sort of hit me at that moment that this was something beyond my comprehension. I mean, this was the biggest political investigation since I don't know, Watergate, probably ever. Right. And I'm giving evidence to this to this committee was was just be really beyond my comprehension. It was quite quite amazing, quite quite incredible, and uh, and just. Like, you know, when will this end? <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, Alex, I've been asking myself that question since he came down the escalator in 2015. So I'm hoping <laughs> that it will soon. I remember, I mean, I just, like I said, I, I remember watching that and just being like, there's not a fucking chance in hell this guy's going to win. Give me a break. And then you start watching the polls and you're like, yeah, everything's going to be fine. Everything's going to be great. And then you're like, holy shit, he actually, he actually pulled it off. Like he actually, he actually did it. And it ties me in back into another part we were talking about earlier was Trump's base and this idea that the Democrats don't they're they're to, to use a phrase they're they're playing checkers with a chess player right they 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 do not understand they're playing political gamesmanship with someone who has basically just turned the table over and said screw you I'm going to do whatever I want but one of the things I think that was most striking about this entire documentary, for me at least, is the feverish, almost cult-like behavior. It's a spell in a lot of ways that he has over the base. People were genuflecting, they're crying, they're, you know, the man, I, I'm, I'm thinking of the man who was talking to, I think, Ivanka or uh, Tiffany at the, the one event, and he's just, he's an older man, and he just starts crying. You know, I love him so much. And I have a hard time in my brain trying to wrap my mind around something like that, how someone could be so involved or just so, for lack of a better term, obsessed. 
What's your analysis after watching this back and interacting with a lot of these folks? What do you attribute that to? Is it one thing in particular? Or do you think he really is, Trump, I, I mean, Trump is that good at playing to those people's insecurities and fears that are happening in the country right now? Well, that's definitely the main reason, right? He has this ability to tap into people's insecurities, into these, into the things that people would normally keep quiet and not say aloud. He started saying these things aloud. But, you know, it's a typical populist-type methodology, right? It's like, I can fix all your problems. Uh, you know, there, there's no such thing as a hard problem. They're all easy fixes. And, you know, we, you know it, it's just like, I'm your guy. Everyone doesn't like you no one likes you i like you i will fix everything and he'll say the things that people have for, for, for you know somewhat of a significant time have kept quiet and he was bringing them to the forefront and i mean just the other day right where he is denigrating and making fun of you know a transgender person right at this speech i mean it's just so cruel and it's so unnecessary to behave like that but you hear the laughter and the the cheers to that type of behavior. And I think that that's just an example of how he is able to, you know, he, he just is that, he's that cultish leader that will use all the, all the tools, really no uh, real politician, no matter what side of the political spectrum would, would do. You know, it's, it's, it's uncouth. And it's non-statesmanlike, and it's cruel and obnoxious and, and unfair. You know, it's perfectly fine to have a debate about controversial issues. You can you can disagree. You can you can argue. You can you can try and persuade each other. You can try and persuade people that are listening in a civilized way. But Trump doesn't do that, right? He stands up and he screams and shouts and riffs and 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 just gives people what they want. And what they want isn't something that's so easily done and give, but he basically says it is. So that's definitely one aspect. The other aspect is that he is, I mean, you know, the, the fact that he's so unusual and so different and so um, bizarre, you know, it is a, a, another way that, that people sort of respond and, you know, and, and think uh, that they, that he's their, that he's their man. And it does, I mean, it sort of beggars belief because he's a, He's a guy from Queens that inherited money from his dad that became very wealthy building you know, property in, you know, in buildings in, in New York and then seems to have some connection to you know, people all, all over that have, that have really no connection whatsoever to that, to that life. So I, it is pretty fascinating. But the real answer to this question is that people need to engage with those people in a way that isn't patronizing or um, argumentative is, is to actually understand what it is that they're looking for and what it is that they want and to try and explain that you know, the way to, to get this is to, is to think about this or to appreciate that the, the, the idea that, that Trump can just push a button and all your dreams come true clearly it didn't happen. Right, right. So I think that engaging with the man that's crying or the, the lady that can't get a boyfriend because she loves Trump so much, like that is, it's important to engage with these people and to understand where they're coming from and what their anxieties are and what their issues are. And that's important rather than just like writing this off as, you know, lunatics. Or, I mean, there's certainly lunatics you know, involved in this, but I don't think everyone is, and, and I know not everyone is. So engaging with them, I think, is very important. I want to talk about 2024 because it's coming up a lot, even though we're two years away from it, but it's gonna, the wheels are going to start turning again because, unfortunately, Alex, the shit never stops. My friend Bob or Robert Costa asked you on Face the Nation if you thought that Donald Trump was going to run in 2024, and you indicated that you thought because he failed, he doesn't want to fail again, and because he's already failed, the chances of him doing it again are very unlikely. But I kind of had a splinter cell question from that response. And it has to do with his kids. And I know you touched on it a little bit in some of your conversations and then also inside of the, inside the documentary itself. I wanted to kind of 
dive a little bit deeper into this as far as understanding the mindset of somebody like Ivanka or somebody like Don Jr. Because I don't believe that Eric has any ideas based upon what I saw. Eric has, he's just like, whatever, I want to just be at home. Fuck it. I did all this. I don't want to do it anymore. But it really feels like almost in a lot of ways that Donald Jr. and Ivanka are kind of jockeying for power. Based on your conversations and a lot of the, the, the experiences that you had with them, who do you think is the more likely candidate to run and win? in 2024 if Donald Sr. decides he's not going to do it? As I, I don't think that either of them have the ability to run in 2024, as in Don Jr. and Ivanka. I think that if they were to, it would take some time. I mean, maybe Don Jr. might try something on. Uh, I mean, they say that uh, when you say run, you're talking about for president or you're talking about for any sort of political I'm just talking position. About, I'm talking about anything in general. It could be president. I know, you mentioned oh. mayor. I know there was some talk of like mayor of New York or governor of New York, and he was like, you know, Zero percent interest, but we all know yeah. he's full of shit. But- yeah. <laughs> As to them running for any political position, I'm, I'm I'm not sure, but I'm saying in terms of of who is the one that came across as the most keen, you know, Don Junior for sure is the one that that came across the the most enthusiastic about the idea of staying in politics, and we can see that. I mean, he's incredibly engaged, you know, now on social media, etc. He's certainly the one that has the most. Um, you know, in his mind, like he's the one that that believes in the rhetoric and the things that he says. Uh, so, you know, with, with regards to the politics, right? Uh, I, I personally think Ivanka doesn't at all subscribe to a lot of the Republican politics uh, at all. I mean, it just doesn't really add up to when you look at her life prior to her entering into the White House that she subscribes to these to these views. So, yeah, I think that that's is more tricky for her. Um, and she's really stayed pretty quiet in the last year and a half or so since they left uh, since they left the White House. Whereas Don Jr. has been far more vocal and, and very much somebody who, yeah, yeah, you can see him wanting to get into politics. So I think that to me just is like the, the basic um, the basic answer to that question. But on Trump, on on, on Donald Trump, um, uh, he, he's going to most probably announce he's running. Right. Uh, but as to whether or not he does run, uh, I personally don't think he will actually be the, the candidate for the Republican Party in 2024. Uh, and on this one, I hope I'm right. <laughs> <laughs> I know that you've been accused of being a British spy and a U.S. spy. And I'd like to know, sort of maybe off, we can talk about what it's like to f- have the first CIA and MI6 collaborative mission together uh, in a working setting. But I, I, it seems as though you've been getting a lot of threats. I know, you know, there's been talk about security detail and things of that nature after the documentary has been released. Have you been afraid at any point of any kind of retaliation because of this? I don't think anything that you did in this documentary was skewed in any way, shape, or form. I feel like it was very fair and a very balanced portrayal of what you encountered and what you saw. But I know that people aren't always going to accept that. And then obviously Donald is going to throw red meat to his supporters in any way, shape or form. Have you been concerned at any time because of all this that you've taken on? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think that the, uh, you know, the comments that have already been written and that ha- that come through all the time are, you know, they're not pleasant. And you know, will, will Alex survive the plane journey home? And, you know, those kind of things, right? Uh, those aren't those aren't exactly pleasant, and yeah, one needs to be, I guess, careful. And I think it's incredibly sad that th- that this is the case. Uh, but at the same time, there's also been you know, really special moments as well where people have been kind of receptive and and have watched the series. And and you know what the truth is is that I have absolutely no problem with people watching this and coming to conclusions you know, as they wish, whether or not look the best is. But for me, I think that we've done our job. Where you know, I'll have a staunch Trump supporter who will say that this is the worst film, the worst series, because Alex is a snowflake, liberal, you know, anti-Trump, biased. Yeah, don't watch it. But then I'll get somebody who hates Trump, who says, you can't watch this film because it's Trump propaganda. And they liken me to a Nazi propagandist. So what we've got here is we have the extremes on both sides of the political conversation, both agreeing that the film is bad for exactly the opposite reasons, which I think is amazing, because what does the Trump hater do when the Trump lover says that it's a hit piece, right? When she thinks <laughs> right. it's a, a propaganda piece. And what does he do 
right? Um, on the other side, where you know he's saying that you know Trump is uh, you know was maligned and it's completely biased and unfair, when in fact somebody else is saying that actually it's uh, it, it makes Trump look good. So you know I think that's really interesting. But those are the extremes. Overall, the the reaction that I've seen has been. Aside, obviously, from the dangerous and unpleasant things that people have said, you know, it's been you know, uh, varied. And I, I'm, I, overall, people have found it, I think, pretty fascinating because you get to see these people for the first time in a way that you haven't seen them before because there hasn't been anything like this before. So I think that's pretty interesting. And, uh, yeah, but people are entitled to their own opinions. I just think that when the people start threatening, obviously, that's not pleasant. And, yeah, you have to be careful. If there's one thing that you want people to take away from this documentary series, what would it be? Ooh. Uh, I mean, I think to, I mean, really the truth is, is, is to appreciate and understand that, that one, Donald Trump has not gone anywhere. He's still around. He's still very much a very significant, powerful force in the Republican party. And his quote unquote politics hasn't gone anywhere either. So that's really important. And the other is that you know, the, the importance of democracy and, and the importance of, of, of protecting it as best as we can. And that whilst you know, America has their constitution and I come from a country where you know, it's a slightly different system, the, 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 the point is that we, we do rely a lot of the time on convention, on the idea that people regardless of political positions, will respect certain tenets that aren't necessarily codified in law. Like, if you lose an election, there will be a peaceful transfer of power. And, you know, in America, it's unique in the sense that there is a this interregnum period between potentially losing an election and then leaving office. And so you still have a significant, you, know, you still have all the power of the presidency in a sort of two-month period. And that's really where a lot of the, that, that we see, you know, after 45, what well, he was the 45th, after 44 presidents, they all played by the rules that weren't necessarily written down, whereas Trump didn't. And that's really, I think, one of the things that are, that's really important to, to understand, that, that there are people that won't necessarily play by these rules and to try and protect the, the importance. Look, so, you know, America's democracy has been chipped away by these people, but it's still standing. And yeah, but there are still people chipping away at it. And yeah, I think to, to protect it. And, and these the foundations are important not just for America but for the world. Uh, and uh, and I think that's it's so important that they uh, are kept um, secure as best as, as best as they can be. But, you know, who am I? I'm a Brit, you know, so I should, I should, I should keep quiet. <laughs> hey, man, hey, listen, we're all in the same boat here together, okay? You have now experienced something that we have been living with, I don't want to say since 2015, probably like since the 1980s, so welcome aboard, welcome to the team. Uh, your Dakota <laughs> ring will be in the mail after we're done here. So, uh, Alex Holder, I absolutely love the documentary. I thought it was, it was incredibly well done. It was gripping. It kept my attention the entire time. I thought it was absolutely fantastic. It's out right now on Discovery+. Plus. Check it out. It's called Unprecedented. Um, unprecedented access, for lack of a better word, to Donald Trump and his family throughout the 2020 campaign and also on January 6th. Alex, where can they find you on social media um, for your upcoming projects? I'm really excited as a history guy myself. I'm very intrigued about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict uh, the documentary they have. Is there any sort of tidbits you can give me on on sort of the scope of that before I let you go for the today? Yeah, the premise is trying to understand what is so fascinating about this uh, conflict that sort of generates so much attention and is there a, a world in which there can be a resolution between the, the two parties? So it's, it's pretty interesting. I mean, the, the access that we got on that was also pretty cool. And uh, I think it's going to be pretty insightful. So uh, another really easy project to, to jump into, right? <laughs> you just love these real easy ones. Like, no problem. Everything's going to be just fine here. What, what's the worst that could happen, right? Uh, like I said, <laughs> Unprecedented is out right now on Discovery+. Plus. Alex Holder, thank you so much for your time. This has been a fantastic conversation. And I look forward to having you back on again soon. Yeah, pleasure. Really uh, enjoyed it as well. Thanks so much, man. Foundation Radio is hosted, recorded, and executive produced by Adam Barnard. The show is also produced by Sam Kreps. 
Special thanks to Greg Mead, Joe Keen, Jeff Quinn, and Dr. Ruth Almy. Our intro and outro music is produced by Dumb Ugly. Find this episode and our full archive at foundationradio.net. Follow us on Instagram at foundation underscore radio. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your favorite podcasts. This has been a Foundation Radio production. Butts Carlton, proprietor. Proprietor.